I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. And today we're going to be in two separate passages, Luke 10 and 1 Corinthians 13. Luke 10 and 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you're not quite sure where to find those books in your Bible, I would encourage you to do this. If you're in a physical Bible, open up to the table of contents. Uh, There you'll find that the Bible's broken up into two main sections, the Old and the New Testament. Find the New Testament and you'll see that Luke is three books into the New Testament. Then 1 Corinthians is just a few books past Luke, four books. Uh, So find Luke, then scroll down a few more books, you'll find 1 Corinthians. If you're in an app, what I would encourage you to do is pull the list of the books of the Bible down. Luke is about two thirds down the way of that list. And again, 1 Corinthians is just a few books past Luke. So Luke 10 and 1 Corinthians 13. Now today I wanna open with a question. Have you ever been concerned or been worried that you might be misrepresenting Jesus? I know that that's a concern that I've had. I don't want to misrepresent my God and my Savior. I want people, when they see the way I live and they hear the words that I speak, I want them to see Jesus in me. I want them to hear Jesus by the way I speak. Uh, I want my attitude and my thoughts to accurately reflect who Jesus is in my life. Have you ever been concerned about that? I think it's something that we should pay attention to on a regular basis, that our mind, our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, our words line up and represent Jesus accurately. Paul uses the phrase that we're called ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors to the world around us for Jesus. And so if you've ever been concerned about whether or not you are representing Jesus accurately, luckily for you and I, Jesus talks about that in today's passage. So turn with me now to Luke chapter 10. We're gonna begin in verse 25. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And it says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, Keep your place right there. We're coming back to this passage. But let me paint the picture. Jesus is teaching. A lawyer has come up to him. And in verse 25, the lawyer asks him a question and it tells us that he's asking the question in order to test Jesus. He's testing him. He may be even trying to trap Jesus in his own words. And Jesus asks the lawyer to tell him what uh, you have to do to inherit the kingdom of God. And the, the, the lawyer answers with two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these two are commonly referred to uh, in church circles as the greatest commandments. This teaching is repeated 
multiple times throughout the Bible, especially in the teachings of Jesus. And so since it's repeated multiple times by Jesus, we really should pay very, very close attention to what Jesus is saying. So first off, he's saying the first and most important thing that we should do in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, in order to honor God, is to love God with everything. Love God with all of our being, our mind, our soul, our strength, uh, our spirit, everything should be focused on loving God. And then subordinate under that command is to love our neighbors as ourselves. So let's pay attention to what he's teaching here. Pick back up with me in verse 29. Verse 29, but the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What an amazing teaching. What an amazing passage, but let's kind of explore what Jesus is saying and what's happening in this moment. First thing I want us to notice is in verse 25, when the lawyer first begins speaking to Jesus, it tells us that his motivation for his questioning is to test or maybe even to trap Jesus in his own words. But then when we look into verse 29, after Jesus has given him the teaching, in verse 29, the lawyer's motivation changes. Look with me in verse 29. It says, but the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, the lawyer went to test Jesus. And then when Jesus answered correctly, And he felt convicted, the lawyer felt convicted of the way that he was not fulfilling the greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He felt convicted and felt the need to justify himself, to justify his own sin. You see, we do the same thing. When we ask the question to God, when we question who is my neighbor, we are either seeking to justify ourselves, to justify our own sins, or we're looking for excuses to not do what we know is the right thing. Let's be honest for a minute. Loving our neighbor sometimes is really hard. It's easy to love the neighbors that are kind of like us, But when it comes to loving those that are different than us or that we disagree with or that we have problems with, loving them suddenly becomes very difficult and we look 
to justify and we look for excuses not to love them. Why do we do this? Why do we always make excuses to not fulfill the commands of Jesus? Why do you think that we put conditions on obeying the difficult things that Jesus asks us to do? And you may be saying, well, I don't do that. No, stop making excuses and just realize that you and I, every person ever born except for Jesus, we're all sinners, which means that we all try to justify our sinful actions. And because we've sinned means that we've made excuses to not do what Jesus has asked us to do. And so the key is to figure out how you make excuses, how you justify, and turn that around, not do it anymore. So let's get back to the passage. Let's get back to the parable that begins in verse 30. It's a story of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, let me backtrack just a minute. A parable, which is what Jesus is telling here, a parable is a story that has a deeper spiritual meaning. So this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a road that was very commonly traveled, especially by people coming to Jerusalem. It was the capital. It was the place where the temple of God was located. So people were traveling to Jerusalem constantly. And this was one of the primary, the main roads to get to Jerusalem. And so robbers, thieves would occupy this road and would look for vulnerable people to attack and steal things from. And so this man's traveling, robbers come along, they beat him up, they steal his stuff and leave him there. And the Bible uses the phrase, they left him half dead. Now, in biblical times, uh, during Jesus's days, leaving someone half dead meant you pretty much left them dead. You know, in today's world, you can get in a car crash and you can be half dead and an ambulance can come along and take you to the hospital. And with the knowledge and the technology that we have of how to heal people, there are really good chances that you can be healed of your injuries. But back in Jesus's time, they didn't have the technology and the knowledge of how the human body works. And so they didn't usually have someone that was half dead that recovered. So this man is dying on the side of the road and there are three people that come by. I wanna look at the first two. The first one is a priest and the second one is a Levite. Now, both of these men are religious men. They're both from the tribe of Levi. They both serve in the temple. Uh, So the Levite was someone that was from this group of people within the Israelite people that served in the temple. They they took care of it. They maintained it. They made sure that uh, all the rituals, uh, that everything that was needed for rituals was taken care of. But then you've got the priest. The priest was a Levite, but he was a special Levite. He was a Levite that was from the line, the, the ancestry, the descendant of Aaron. Aaron was a high priest back in the early part of the Old Testament, the beginning of the Bible. And he was promised by God that the high priests would always come from his lineage, from his ancestry. And so the priest was someone who actually went inside the temple and did the ministry work. They would give sacrifices and light incense and and put in the, the showbread, different things that you can read about in the Old Testament. And so both of these men went around on the other side of the road to avoid 
the man who was half dead. Now, they don't know whether he's alive or dead because here's why they went around. I was always told that they went around just to avoid, but that's not actually 100% accurate. You see, the Old Testament tells us that if you were to touch a dead body, a human or animal or whatever, if you touched a dead body, it made you ceremonially unclean. So for a priest and a Levite to touch a dead body meant that they would have to stay away from the temple and couldn't serve there for a number of days. But in Jesus's day, the Levites and the priests had taken that command and they'd taken it a step further. They taught that even if your shadow touched a dead body, that you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so they went the long way around so as to avoid even their shadow touching what they thought could possibly be a dead man. You see, they valued their purity more than they valued the person. And that is completely opposite of what the Bible tells us. Our religious purity should never over supersede our love for people. Are we supposed to be moral? Yes, absolutely. Are we ever supposed to compromise our morality? No, of course not. But loving people should never compromise our morals, especially if, remember the greatest commandments in, in this passage in Luke 10, verses 25 through 29? The greatest commandments say that loving God and his commands comes first and that loving your neighbor comes second. You see, they loved their ritual, their religious purity more than people at all. They had gotten this out of balance. They were basically saying, I'm gonna love God and my religious purity. And they totally ignored the loving people, loving their neighbors. They had excluded, they had taken that passage out and thrown it in the trash. They were so concerned about themselves. They were so selfish that they ignored the man dying, laying on the side of the road. Here's the thing, they could have done something. Even if they wanted to preserve their purity, they could have at least carefully come up to the man and checked to see if he was alive, but they didn't even do that. They completely ignored and went out of their way to mistreat him, to leave him dead. They didn't even try to love him. When your religion hurts people, when your religion puts down people, when your religion makes people suffer, that's not following Jesus. And that's exactly what the Levite and the priest have done here. They have made their religion more important than doing what God told them to do. Loving people should have been more important so that's the first two people, the Levite and the priest. The third person is a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were a unique people group that lived in the nation of Israel and they were despised by the Israelites. They, the Israelites hated them. They actually hated one another. The Samaritans didn't like the Israelites. The Israelites didn't like the Samaritans. And here's why. Let me give you kind of a, a picture. First off, 
The Samaritans did not believe in the Bible. They didn't believe in the, in the books of the Bible that the Israelites, the Jewish people believed in. They only believed in the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so they, they ignored the vast majority of what God's word said. They also worshiped in a way that God condemned. They had mixed idolatry with their worship of God and put those things together. And God will never compromise his worship. If you take idolatry and mix it with your worship of God, it's still idolatry in the end. And so they were suffering from idol worship. And historically, if you go back in history before the days of Jesus, there was a time when the nation of Israel was broken up into two main sections, a northern and a southern section. And uh, a few hundred years before Jesus' life, uh, an, an empire came in and, and conquered the northern part of Israel and took the people away. And then many years later, another empire came and attacked and took over the southern kingdom, did the same thing. They hauled most of the people away, but they left, both these empires left a small group of Jewish people behind. And those Jewish people were mostly from this northern kingdom that had mixed their worship with idolatry. So then... After people were taken away by these two empires, people who were not Israelites immigrated in and they intermarried and mixed within the Jewish people that were still there. And they brought in their idol worship and mixed it with the already compromised worship of God and made it even more idolatrous. And so that's where the Samaritan people come from. The Samaritans were this mixed race people they claimed to worship God, but they were actually worshiping idols and they were not doing it the way God called them to. Uh, many years later, the Israelites were allowed to come back. And, and one of the books that chronicles this return is the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah tells us about the people coming in and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple of God. And, and when the people came back and started rebuilding. We find in Nehemiah 4 that the Samaritans actually opposed and tried to prevent the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. So it made this animosity between the Israelites and the Samaritans, it amplified it because the Samaritans were opposing what the Israelites were trying to do by coming back and rebuilding the city and the temple. Then fast forward to Jesus's lifetime. When Jesus was somewhere around five years old, a group of militant Samaritans came into the city of Jerusalem. They broke into the temple and they did what's called desecrating the temple. Basically what that means is they brought things into God's temple that were unholy, therefore making the temple temporarily unholy itself. And this was one of the greatest insults that someone could do to the Israelites. So the Israelites hated the Samaritans. They despised them. It was historically motivated by some of the things that the Samaritans had done. And it was racially motivated because the Samaritans were not pure Jews. They were this mixed race uh, of foreigners and Israelites. So it was this mixed bag of hatred and discrimination that was taking place. And there was injustice on both sides. There was uh, battles on both sides. It was very messy. And this is the man that Jesus puts into his parable 
as not just a person, but the Samaritan in this parable is the hero. The Samaritan is the person who actually follows God's command to love his neighbor. It wasn't the Levite. It wasn't the priest. The two people that you would expect to be following God's law and to love his neighbor, you would expect those two to do it, but they don't. It's the Samaritan that comes in and does the godly thing. And that's the person that Jesus plugs in. You see, Jesus is speaking out about who our neighbor is. Our neighbor could be someone that we absolutely hate. Our neighbor could be someone that we have been discriminating against. Our neighbor could be someone that we have been allowing injustice to happen or we've been enacting injustice toward. This would have been so scandalous. The people who are hearing Jesus's message right here in this, this moment would have been shocked by what Jesus is saying and the fact that he made a Samaritan the godliest person in the story. So I wanna look again at how he concludes this passage. Look with me in verse 36. So Jesus is speaking and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice the, the lawyer isn't even brave enough to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. This brings me to today's big idea. If you've ever watched one of my messages, you know that I usually give a simple statement that sums up the main point of that week's message. And today's big idea is this. Love doesn't see people, love seeks people. Let me say that again. Love doesn't see people, love seeks people. You see, Jesus told this parable to teach us about loving our neighbor as ourselves and what that really means. You see, love is not passive, it's active. And so I think before we go any further, we need to answer the question, what is love? So take your Bibles and turn with me to the other passage that I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me read verses one through three. We're gonna pick up in verse four, but let me read for you verses one through three. Jesus is going to define for us what love is through Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians 13. So 13, one says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Your faith, 
your good works, your belief in Jesus, if you don't have love, all those things are useless, according to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. And now in verse four of 1 Corinthians 13, he's going to define love. So pick up with me in 1 Corinthians 13, verse four. It says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You see, nothing in this passage speaks of emotions. Everything in 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven is an action. It's an intentional action that we take. You see, love, true love, real love is an action that comes with an emotional response. Emotions come and go. But true love is an action that comes with an emotional response. You see, love is intentional and it is sacrificial. It's costly. Love is intentional and it's sacrificial. If we go back to the, the account, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan's love drove him to do something that was inconvenient and costly to himself. So he had to be intentional about doing it. In doing that, he rightly represented Jesus. If you're concerned about misrepresenting Jesus, this Good Samaritan teaches us how not to misrepresent Jesus. So Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. So we've asked what love is. Now we need to ask the same question that the lawyer asks. Who is our neighbor? If we put all the excuses and the labels and the only ifs aside and we narrow it down to how God defines who our neighbor is, then our neighbor is everyone. Our neighbor are those that we like, those that we hate, those that we don't trust, those we see as undeserving. Our neighbors are everyone, not just the people that we like or that it's easy to like. You see, our neighbors are baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Generation Zs. Our neighbors are Caucasian, they're black, they're Asian, they're Native American, they're Indian, and they're Middle Eastern and everything else. Our neighbors are conservatives, moderates, liberals, they're Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, they're even communists and socialists and everything in between. Our neighbor is everyone. Our neighbors are Christians. Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Wiccans, atheists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Our neighbors might identify as LGBTQ. And if you don't know what that is, go look it up. Our neighbors might be homeless or immigrants. They may be addicted. They may be suffering from uh, struggles with mental health. They may be depressed or sick. They may be incarcerated for crimes. Our neighbors are everyone. Our neighbors, the people that Jesus commands us to love, are usually not 
like you and I. Our neighbors are everyone. And we've got to wrap our hearts and our minds around the fact that the second most important command according to Jesus is to love people that we don't like, to love our neighbors. So how can we sacrificially love others? How can you, how can I, how can you sacrificially love others, even those that you can't identify with or that you don't like? Let me very quickly give you a few pointers on how to love others. First off, remember Jesus's love for you. If you were to go look up 1 John chapter four, you're gonna find that, that John gives us a description of Jesus's overwhelming love toward us. You see, the fact is, is that you don't deserve Jesus's love, but he gives it to you anyway. He loved you before you were saved or rescued from your sins. And he loves you now, despite the fact that you continue to sin. And maybe you're watching right now and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus. And you say, you know what? That love of Jesus sounds really good. Or I've got questions. If you've got questions, let me just unpack very quickly. Jesus was and is the son of God. He lived a perfect life and he died on a cross to save you, to rescue you from your sins. You see, you and I, everyone, we are all sinners. We've disobeyed God. We have not done perfectly the thing that is right, the good thing. And so as a result, our sin has an eternal consequence of pain and suffering. But Jesus came along and when he died on that cross and three days later rose from the grave, he conquered that sin and that death and that punishment. And he offers that to you. Rather than eternal punishment, he offers you eternal perfection with him. And if you've got questions about that, what I want you to do is take your device and I want you to text the word changing to 94000. That's changing to 94000. So how do we love sacrificially? Remember Jesus's love for you. Secondly, choose to love. Choose love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is an action that has to be intentional. So choose to love, but that also means that you have to intentionally choose to squash, to purge, to do away with those inside voices that are calling you to not love others, to not love your neighbor. So remember Jesus's love, choose to love. Thirdly, pray for Jesus's help in loving others. Matthew 5, 43 through 45 tells us Jesus speaking, and he says, love your uh, enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I'll be honest, we can't do that without the help of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. So remember Jesus's love, choose to love, pray for Jesus's help in loving others. And fourthly, don't just see your neighbor, but seek them. Don't just see them, seek them. Don't be so quick to judge until you've had a chance to sit and talk and understand where they're coming from. Let me give you a few passages uh, about this. Proverbs 18, two, Proverbs 18, two. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 
John 7, verse 24, that's John 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then lastly, Philippians 2, verses three through four. That's Philippians 2, verses three through four. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We should be not judging, not casting judgment, but seeking to understand, considering them more significant than ourselves. So remember Jesus's love for you. Choose to love. Pray for Jesus's help in that. Don't just see them, but seek them. And fifth, find ways to build up rather than tearing down. Ephesians 4.29, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Every word that you and I say should be building up the people around us, whether we like those people or not, so that we can show them and give grace to everyone who hears us. But that's hard in today's society. So today, will you choose to intentionally and sacrificially love your neighbor the way Jesus calls you to love your neighbor? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for today. And Lord, we thank you for your love, for that perfect, unconditional love that you give to us. And we pray that in light of that love, that in turn, we would love others unconditionally. But that's hard. So Lord, we pray for your help. We pray that you would help us to do that. Convict us of the ways that we don't do it so that we can be more like you, so that we can represent you to the world around us. We thank you and we praise you and we lift all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.